Uh, so it's always vacation time, and when it's vacation time, one of the things I like to do is this summer scripture series, because uh, what we do a lot of times, we'll take just a book of the Bible, um, a short book, and we'll just go straight through it. Uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. Instead of taking a whole book, we're starting in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to go Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've ever heard anyone talk about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that's what this is. And as I've been studying his Sermon on the Mount, a couple of things I found out, I got super nerdy about it, and I found out that it's extremely organized. It doesn't seem that way from the surface, but it's extremely organized, and we're not going to get into that side of it. You can study that part on your own, Um, but... But I just, I just want to tell you how very cool this sermon is that Jesus preached. So my goal today is kind of preach his sermon and, uh, and allow his words to infiltrate our hearts and hopefully change us um, as we go. But, but whenever we do this series, the thing I like about it is it makes it very easy for people to follow. So all you got to know is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So for the next few weeks, you can be studying over Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read them. You may come up with some stuff different than what I come up with. Maybe you see it from a different angle than me. And, um, and it'll be really cool for all of us to kind of study the scriptures together. Uh, before we get into the word today, here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray. I know we prayed earlier, but we're going to pray one more time. And in this prayer, I want us to be very specific uh, uh, about ourselves. I want us to ask God to do something for us today. Because I feel like no matter what we preach, God is always speaking, right? I was in a, I was in a service one time, and, and I was preaching um, about finances. And as I was preaching about finances, I had someone uh, come up to me after service, and they said, hey, man, God's really dealing with my heart about this. And it was totally different than finances. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, how did he get that from what I was talking about? And I realized very quickly it had nothing to do with what I was saying. Like God's got his own agenda and he can speak to our hearts no matter what I'm talking about, right? And so, uh, so he said, yeah, you started talking and all of a sudden my, my brain just went blank. I didn't hear a word you said, but I felt like God said this to me and I need to get my heart right. And I was like, okay, what am I doing here? I'm not sure. So um, here's what I want us to pray. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts today. No matter what we talk about in Matthew chapter 5 today, I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Because there may be one specific thing that God is dealing with you about. There may be one thing that God is working on you, and and He needs to deal with you today. And whatever that is, I want us to ask God to deal with us today. I want to ask God to speak to us. I want to ask God to open up our hearts and our minds to be able to receive what He has for us. At the end of the service today, we're going to offer you a chance for prayer. If you need prayer for anything, we want to pray with you. We want to be a part of what God's doing in your life. Amen? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just invite you into this place. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to our hearts. Today we need you. We need you more than what, what I'm going to say. We need you more than, than our worship. We need you more than, uh, than the Mexican restaurant after church. God, we need you more today. And so, God, today some of us are going through some issues, God. Some of us are going through, through some, some life struggles, and, and, and we need you to speak to our hearts God, I pray for those that are watching online this morning that are on vacation. And God, no matter where they are, I ask that you speak to their hearts. God, you reach everywhere. You are omnipresent. And so we ask your spirit to speak to us and deal with us. Whatever it is that we need today, we give our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to start. Before we get into that, i got a couple of thoughts I want to give you um, just to kind of establish some groundwork here. So in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount... The groundwork here that we're going to establish is that his talking to us is about our hearts, not about our actions. Okay, so so right off the bat, he wants to establish what a Christian should look like. He doesn't call them Christians. He says a citizen of heaven. Jesus Jesus talks about a new kingdom that he's ushering in. And in this whole series, this whole part is what is a citizen of this new kingdom supposed to look like? And so, so that's what he's going to start establishing. And one of the things he's going to establish is he's going to establish the fact that our identity, uh, who we are, matters more than what we do. <clears throat> Think about that for a second. Who we are matters more than what we do. If I were to use bad English, I would say who we be matters more than who we do, Right? Because the Bible, listen, listen, we're not called, my dad said this years ago, we're not called human doings. We're called human beings. Who we are matters more than what we do. And here's the thing, if we can get who we are correct, then what we do will naturally flow out of that. Sometimes I think we struggle um, 
with this idea of I keep sinning or I keep messing up or I keep doing things that I'm just not really sure about and I wish I could stop. The problem is not necessarily stopping what you're doing. The problem is changing who you are. When Jesus goes to the goes through the um, the cities and he begins to preach, the Bible says the first thing Jesus ever preached was repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, repent, change how you think, change your identity. Don't be the same person that you used to be. Change. Why? Because there's a new kingdom coming and I'm establishing this new kingdom and we need to be different, not do different. Because if you can be different, then what you do will flow out of that. There's a couple of scriptures that prove my point. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says this. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. In other words, who you are matters more than what you do because who you are will establish what you do. Right? We've got firemen in the room. We've got police officers in the room. Listen, the way that you guys act and the way you present yourself and the things you do, a lot of it is determined by the badge you wear on your chest. Right? There's a lot of that stuff is determined. I'm a police officer, therefore I must do these things. I have to uphold the law. Even if it's not the way I see it, the way I like it, I still have to uphold the law. A a, a fireman is going to look at a burning building and that fireman is going to think, if I run into that building, there's potential I could die. But I got this badge on my chest that says I'm supposed to run in there. That's my identity as a fireman is I run into danger. I don't run away from it. Right. You understand our identity determines what we do. And so it's important for us to get the identity part right, get the heart part right. Proverbs 4.23 says this. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So who we are matters more than what we do. Why? Because because who I am will determine what I do. And I know I've, I've said that like 30 times already in the first two minutes of this message. But we got to get that established because that's what Jesus's whole Sermon on the Mount is going to be about. Later on, he's going to talk about uh, he's going to talk about adultery and and he's going to say things like, like, listen, stop worrying so much about adultery. Worry more about lust in your heart. Why? Because who you are matters more than what you do. If you get who you are right, then what you do will will be a natural flow from that. He's going to say, talk about murder. He's going to say, the scriptures say, thou shalt not murder. But listen, I'm telling you, don't hate someone in your heart. Why? Because what's in here matters more than what's out here, because what's in here will determine what's out here. And so Jesus is going to, he's going to hit very hard this whole series about our hearts and about what's inside versus what's outside. So, so uh, the next thing I want to talk about real quick, let me just throw another word at you real quick, because he's going to use this a lot, is the word blessed. Uh, nowadays, we've got blessed is everywhere, right? Hashtag blessed. We put it on everything. We see, uh, we see millionaires, um, uh, you know, supermodels and, and, uh, and TV stars and movie stars. And, and they're showing a picture of themselves sitting next to their swimming pool, you know, with, uh, you know, $5,000 swimsuit on. And they post hashtag blessed, you know. Uh, we see them driving their Bentleys and they post hashtag blessed. And I'm just like, no, it's not hashtag blessed. That's... That's hashtag you spent a whole lot of money on something, you know, and your mama gave you that money because she worked hard and you didn't, but you earned it uh, somehow. And so um, so there's this idea of blessed that's kind of screwed up in, the, in our world today. But the word blessed is going to be used a lot in Matthew chapter five. So I need to give you a baseline on this. Blessed means this. Blessed means that it, that it is um, you are full of joy, but joy is not conditional. So um, so it's this idea that it, it's not based on what's around me. Right. I can have joy not based on what's around me. I can have joy in the middle of a storm. A, a lot of times I listen to a lot of sermons, man. And, and, and a lot of times I hear a lot of sermons that are all about life is going to be good for you. And you're going to be blessed beyond measure. And everything's going to be running over. And you're, you're going to be, you're going to have all this wonderful stuff happen to you. And, and then all of a sudden we get outside of the church doors. And, and the first time we get outside the church doors, everything starts falling apart. And we start wondering where that blessing went. And then we get mad at God because I'm not feeling blessed like you said I was going to be in the sermon. But blessed has nothing to do with the circumstances around you. I can have joy in the middle of a storm. 
all throughout the New Testament, it's all storms. I don't know if you notice this, but there are very rarely any scriptures where the Bible says, and all of a sudden the sun was shining and there was a rainbow and a cool breeze blowed through and everyone sat around and had a picnic. No, it says people were hungry. It says people were thirsty. It says people were hot. It says people had storms. It says the boat was about to sink. It says the man was about to drown. It's always talking about some bad stuff happening. But throughout all of that, there's joy and peace throughout all of it. Why? Because my joy, my blessing is not circumstantial. It's not based on what's around me. My joy and my peace is based on what God gives me. And, and so the word blessed means to have joy that's not based on, cir- on conditions. The word blessed means to be fulfilled. It, it means that you can be fulfilled even though things may not be the best they've ever been. Right? Listen, yesterday uh, we went to, on this prayer walk. And I'm going to be honest with you. That's not necessarily like my thing. Right? I struggle on stuff like that. I prefer to preach when it comes to ministry. I like to be up here. This is where I'm the most comfortable. As a matter of fact, yesterday they said, all right, we're going to pray and we're going to get into groups and you're going to pray for two minutes in a group. And so I got over with the group and I huddled up with this group. And all of a sudden I realized as soon as they said, all right, pray, I begin to pray very loud. And I, I just took over the whole prayer group. And, and that's who I am. And so I thought, look, Gabriel, you can't take over everything. Like you got to let other people pray, right? And so then I went, I was like, okay, I'm leaving this prayer group because I've already embarrassed myself. I'm gonna go to another prayer group. So I go to the other prayer group and I get over there and they said, okay, guys, now we're going to pray for this. And as I get over there, they all look at me like, okay, you're the pastor. You got to pray. And I said, I'm going to let one of you guys pray because I don't need to be the one praying the whole time. And so I just sat there and waited And on the inside, I'm going, somebody talk, please talk. And I'm just sitting there waiting and I'm beginning to shake. And it's not the Holy Spirit. It's totally me because I'm just like, I want to pray out loud, but you people won't pray. And finally, somebody started praying. And when they started praying, I felt this relief. And then they paused and I wanted to interject really bad, but I couldn't do it. Right. So it just wasn't my thing. Like, that's not necessarily where I operate the best. And so we got done with the prayer thing. But listen, let me tell you something. We got done. I was totally fulfilled. I left there. Did I want 100 people showing up? Sure, everybody wants 100 people showing up to something. We had 25, and someone came up to me afterward. They said, you had 25 people here. And I was like, is that good? And they were like, yes, that's incredible. And I was like, oh, that makes me feel so good. Like, uh, like this is great. And I felt so fulfilled. Not everything was ticked off of my box of everything that I like and I prefer. But it doesn't mean that I wasn't fulfilled. It doesn't mean that I wasn't blessed in that moment. I was blessed. So Jesus is going to use the word blessed a lot. And you just need to understand that, that there's fulfillment in the word blessed, right? And, and most of us want to be fulfilled in life, right? Very rarely do I find someone that says, you know what? I would rather just go through life about half full. No, everybody wants to be all the way full. We want to be fulfilled and we want to know what that feels like. And so, so Jesus is going to tell us that. So let's look at Matthew chapter five verses. We'll start at verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth, and he taught them, saying, here we go, here's the message. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to stop right here. We're going to go through all of these different blessings, right? What these different characteristics are. He's going to give us characteristics. Um, I, I, did this, I did this study with my small group uh, back, back in the fall. Um, but, but he gives us these characteristics of what a citizen of the new kingdom is going to look like. So let's look at these characteristics. The first one is being poor in spirit. And, and there's, another, there's another teaching here that, that we could get off on a tangent. I'm not going to. That says that all of these things build on each other. That poor in spirit is the base. It's the bottom layer. And everything else builds off of that. I'm not going to get into that today. We're going to look at the individual ones. But if you want to study that on your own, be my guest and, and come back to me. We'll talk about it because I love this, this passage. Poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit. Now, some people will just say, blessed are the poor. And they stop at the spirit part. Yes, poor people can be blessed, but rich people can be blessed too. So I, I can't just stop at poor. You got to understand, he says poor in spirit for a reason. The, the reason he's talking about being poor in spirit is poor in spirit is a place of humility. Being poor in spirit is an understanding. If someone is poor, right? Like, like I've had friends that were poor. Some people think that they're poor here in America, but you go overseas. Go live in Guatemala for 10 minutes and you'll find someone that's truly poor. 
poor. I, I remember uh, one of my friends, I, I've told this story before, he lived in a park. His house was at the end of a park. And, um, and so we would always go play in the park. I'd go over to my buddy's house. And from the outside, his house looked like a normal little bitty house. But whenever you walked into the house, you realized very quickly that there had been a mudslide at some point because this house sat on the edge of a hill and the back half of, of his house had washed down the hill. So literally, they had half a house. And so you'd walk into the house, and there's a little hallway. You open up the front door. You walk into the hallway, and there was a curtain sitting there. And, and it wasn't really a curtain. It was a bed sheet that was hanging from the wall. And you pull that bed sheet out, and there was dirt floor. And no back of the house whatsoever. And that's how my little buddy lived. Every one of his teeth were black and rotten and falling out. And me being a, a, a friend and a buddy, I would put him on my bicycle. He was little. I'd put him on my bicycle, and I would, I would ride the bike to the, um, to the little tienda around the corner, and I would go buy the only American candy I could buy was um, sweet tarts, like the roll sweet tarts, you know? They're so hard. And I don't know, I would buy him sweet tarts. I was so, like, now thinking about it, I'm like, this poor kid's teeth were falling out of his head, and I'm buying him hard candy. Here you go, chew on this kid. And, um, and so I'm sure it didn't help. But, but I remember this kid being dirt, literally dirt poor, like dirt house poor. And, and, and so, so here's the thing to understand. He needed things. He couldn't get to the tienda without me. He couldn't get candy without me. As a little eight-year-old kid, I provided for my friend. Listen, being poor in spirit is recognizing that you don't have it all together spiritually and you've got to have somebody help you. You've got to have a savior that, that your works aren't going to get you to heaven. Your denomination's not going to get you to heaven. Your church attendance isn't going to get you to heaven. That you've got to have a savior that's willing to lay down his life for you. That you've got to have somebody that's going to love you and take care of you. That's what being poor in spirit is. I've been saddened lately. I know it's come up a lot in my messages, but I've been saddened lately about all these, all these great church, um, big church and, and big ministry pastors that, that have fallen away, that have had struggles, that have had issues. And, and as I begin to read articles about them and some of the things that are said um, after the fact, and you go back and you read certain things that, that guys were told, hey, you need to go get counseling or you need to sit down. And they would say, you don't know who I am. I am spiritual enough that I don't need counseling. Like these are the little words that people said. I don't need to sit down. And what's happened is we've become so big and so strong in our own spirit. And we're so full spiritually. But the problem is we need to be poor. We need to be poor spiritually. We need to keep ourselves in a place of humility that says, I don't know it all. I don't have it all together. And I've got to have some people to help me. Not only do we need Christ as our savior, but we need the people around us. We need the people that God puts in our lives to encourage us and help us and walk us through what it is that we need. The second thing it says in Matthew chapter 5, if we go down to verse 4, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word mourn here has nothing to do with mourning over death. It has nothing to do with mourning over death. As, as a matter of fact, that's what I used to think. I thought, well, well, there's a blessing for people that are poor and there's a blessing for people that are sad. It has nothing to do with being sad. It has nothing to do with mourning over death. As a matter of fact, whenever you read through this and you study it, it, it means this, to mourn over sin, to mourn over failure. How many times have we seen somebody that sins? How many times have we seen somebody that falls uh, or seen somebody that messes up and, and, and they fail and they just cover it up? They just wipe it under the rug and they just act like nothing's wrong and they act like everything's okay. And Jesus says, listen, I need to see some people that when you mess up, you know you messed up. Like it hurts you to mess up. Have you ever had one of those moments where it hurts you to mess up? I, I've got kids that are in school and, um, and, and grades has been a big part of our life for the past couple of months because we're getting to the end of school and, and God love her, Perry has taken on the role of, of bad guy sheriff in our house when it comes to grades and... Um, and so Perry's like constantly on the kids about their grades and, and Gabriel, you got to go ask for extra credit and, 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 and Emma, you got to do this and, and just constantly on them about their grades, Right. And, and listen, I wouldn't care so much. I wouldn't care so much. And Perry probably wouldn't care so much if we felt like our kids were bothered by a C. But our kids get a C and they're like, yeah, but my buddy got an F. I'm like, I don't care what your buddy got. Your buddy's dumb. He doesn't need to be your buddy anyway. Like, he needs a tutor. He doesn't need a friend. Like, you need to get your act together. Why don't you feel bad about this C? Yeah, but I tried hard. You tried hard. 
Yeah, I looked over the paperwork like the day before. I'm like, you didn't try hard, Emma. And so, um, and so I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we want people, like we want our kids, we want our kids to feel the pain of failure a little bit. Why? Because feeling the pain of failure sometimes will spur you on to get better. But whenever failure is just not a big deal, it doesn't matter, it is what it is, then, then all of a sudden we just continue to live in a lifestyle of failure. When failure becomes the norm, then we live in a lifestyle of failure. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 says this in verse 9. Paul has just disciplined the Corinthian church through his letters, right? Through his letters he disciplined them because they were jacked up. They were doing some stupid stuff. And so he says this. Now I'm glad I sent it. Talking about a letter that I already sent you guys. I'm glad I sent it. Not because it hurts you. So Paul's already acknowledging the fact, I sent y'all a letter and it hurt your feelings and I'm glad about it. I'm glad I hurt your feelings. That's what Paul's saying. I'm glad I sent it. Not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Verse 11, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You show that you've done everything necessary to make things right. There's a place in failure where we need to mourn over our failure. Why? Because it pushes us to say, I'm willing, God, I'm willing to do anything to make this right. I'm willing to do anything to make this right. Listen, there's been times in my life where I've had failure when I've had sin and, and I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I just I was just talking to my kids the other day based off of last week's sermon um, where we talked about how if someone's got a problem, you need to be a safe place for them to bring their problem where they don't feel like they're always getting a hammer dropped on them, but someone's there to listen and help them walk through it. And and so I was talking to my kids about this and and about how important it is if you've got an issue or a problem, even if it's a sin problem, that you need to bring it to mom and dad. Let us help you with it. And and in talking about that, that that was one of the things when I was younger, I never wanted to take my issues to people. I just thought if I just keep covering up my issues. And finally, one day I got to the point where I mourned enough. I was saddened enough. I was hurt enough at my own actions that I said, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to have to open up my whole life to somebody. I got to tell somebody everything. I don't want to do this, but if it's what it takes, I'm going to do it because the Bible says to confess and repent. And this is the only way I know to get out of this. And it absolutely transformed my life. There are certain things that, that, that we need to be saddened about so much so that we're willing to do whatever it takes to fix it. All right. And so, so there's a place where we're blessed, we're fulfilled. Why? When we mourn, when we mourn over sin. And here's the cool thing. He says, not only are you blessed, but you'll be comforted. Like you think it's going to hurt really bad, but God says, if you'll learn how to confess, if you'll learn how to mourn over your sin, that I'll comfort you. I'll be the one to comfort you. Verse five says this, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is an interesting word. Most people just say weak right there, right? We just view that as weak and we keep going. I don't want to do anything with meekness. Um, but here's the thing about meek. Meek does not mean weak. Meek means to have strength, but to have it under control. To have strength, but have it under control. In my small group, I was, I was talking about, um, I, I used uh, my friend Andrew as an example. Andrew's a, a big guy. He's very, very strong. He can lift hundreds of pounds um, that's it. He can lift hundreds of pounds. My daughter, so Emma goes to workouts for volleyball, and she'll say, Dad, I did 150 today. And I'm like, you did 150 what? She's like, 150 pounds. I'm like, that's great, depending on what you're talking about. Like, did you do 150-pound curls? If you did, you're amazing. Let's get you on TV. But did, what, did you do a 150-pound deadlift? That's pretty good. You know, it's like there's, there's some concept. Andrew lifts hundreds of pounds. 
All of them. Every way. He can do it. Right? He's very, very strong. And one day I'm watching Andrew and he's at the gym and, and he just got done lifting hundreds of pounds in all various ways. And he's sitting on the floor and, and his little baby, uh, Maddie, comes running up to him. And when she runs up to him, she jumps at him and hits him and he falls over right? like, like she tackled him, right? And he just picks her up. And I thought immediately, I thought, this is meekness. This is meekness personified because all Andrew would have to do, as creepy as this is about to sound, is squeeze real hard and that little kid is just broken into pieces. All he has to do is just take her and throw her in the air and she's over the gym like she's gone, right? But what happens? What happens is he's, he's got strength under control to the point that he can hold a little baby without hurting her. And what we do sometimes is we say, I just can't help it. I got to give them a piece of my mind. I got to tell them what it's all about. I got to go tell this person this and I got to do this. And, and they just cut me off in line. I'm going to drive my car around and honk my horn and get in front of them. And, 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 and we say, I can't help it. What, what, what you're saying when you say I can't help it is you're saying I have no meekness. I have lots of strength. I have lots of ability, but I have zero control. I've seen spiritual people do this. They, they, they've taken their spiritual ability and haven't been able to control it. So therefore, they have no meekness. But Jesus is saying, if you want to be a citizen of heaven, one of the characteristics is to be meek. You've got to be able to be strong, but at the same time, be in control. And here's what we say. Yeah, but if I'm, if I'm, if I'm meek, I'm going to get run over by everybody. If I don't give them a piece of my mind, then they're going to run over me every single time. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you're meek, you'll inherit the earth. I'll make sure you've got everything. I'll make sure you've got everything you need. You'll inherit the earth. You'll be the head and not the tail. You'll be in charge and not not beneath. And, and, And he's telling them that because he's saying, you're not going to get run over if you'll just be a citizen of heaven. And a citizen of heaven is meek. Verse six says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is probably my second favorite one of all of these, right? Um, I've got a favorite one here in just a minute, but this is my second favorite one. This one says hunger and thirst. Um, the, the idea of, of hunger, have you ever been hungry or thirsty? Like, like, I'm not talking about like me, like I'm always hungry, like literally I can eat all the time. Um, I'm not talking about that kind of hungry. I'm talking about to the, to the point you're willing to eat anything, right? Like I'm hungry right now, but if you put a watermelon in front of me, I would not eat it. I do not like melons of any sort. Watermelon, cantaloupe, uh, whatever the other gross slimy melons are. I don't eat those, right? I don't eat those. You put a hamburger in front of me, I'll eat that. But, but not a watermelon, right? I don't, I don't do watermelons. And, and, so, um, and, and so I'm not that hungry. But have you ever been so hungry that you would eat the watermelon, right? Like you would eat the one thing. I have never been that hungry. I have never been hungry enough to eat an oyster. I've never been hungry enough to eat a mushroom. Both are pretty gross, right? They're, they're, yeah, they're like boogers. Um, and so I would never eat those. I'm not ever that hungry. I've been thirsty, though. I've been really, really thirsty before. And, and whenever you're really, really thirsty, when you're really, really hungry, you are desperate to do anything you can to be able to, to satisfy that hunger and that thirst. There's, there's been times I've seen um, my wife or my kids uh, get in the car. I've seen my sons, uh, both of my sons, get in the car after practice, and they're so thirsty. They're like, Dad, do you have any water? And I'll say, yes, I've got this water that I used at the gym three days ago, and it's been sitting in my car, and it's about 1,000 degrees. And they'll be like, I don't care. I'm just, I, 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 they're just drinking the water, right? They're thirsty. And God says this, Jesus says this, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Listen, it's important that we have that kind of desperation. But here's the thing. A lot of people are desperate. A lot of people hunger and thirst. They just hunger and thirst after all the wrong stuff. Like it's one thing to hunger and thirst after riches. It's one thing to hunger and thirst after status. It's one thing to hunger and thirst after popularity. And a lot of people do that and they do it very well. But Jesus doesn't say that those people are blessed. He says, you're blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you ever noticed people that hunger and thirst for riches are never satisfied? I'm not saying riches are bad. I'm just saying whenever your full desire, when you're fully consumed with I've got to get more money, have you ever noticed that there's never enough money? 
when you're fully consumed with how many followers you have on social media, there are never enough followers. There's always somebody with more out there. When you're fully consumed with something, you're never satisfied. But Jesus says if you'll be fully consumed with getting righteousness, you will be satisfied. I'll make sure you're fulfilled. I think that's probably my favorite one. So what, what should we be pursuing? We should be pursuing His Word. I should be hungry and thirsty for His Word. I should be hungry and thirsty for His will in my life. I should be hungry and thirsty for His lifestyle. The citizenship. That's what I should be hungry for. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This one's kind of cool. Um, and I'm not going to stay this long because I want to get to the next one pretty quick. But, but this one is really neat because the idea of this is a, it's cyclical. Look at this for a second. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, if you give mercy, you will get more mercy. Give mercy, get mercy. And it's just a cycle that keeps going. And and listen, if we're poor in spirit, then we recognize the fact that we need mercy. When you're not poor in spirit, then mercy, this part doesn't matter to you. You could care less because you think I've got it all together. It doesn't matter. I don't need mercy. But whenever you are poor in spirit, you recognize the fact I need mercy. Therefore, I need to give mercy. And the more I give mercy, I will receive more mercy. And it's a cycle that keeps going. There's a story in the Bible, if you ever read through uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, great books of the Bible, um, awesome stories in there about Saul and David and Samuel. Samuel's also in there. Um, it's written uh, with his name. Uh, but Saul and David are, are really cool stories to read because here's the thing. Saul hated David, wanted to kill David, right? And God had mercy on David and protected David from Saul's hand. Then all of a sudden, David has a chance to kill Saul, to enact his revenge on Saul. But David had been shown mercy from God and therefore shows mercy to Saul. And then later on in David's life, David sins and messes up. And guess what he gets from God? Mercy. It's a cycle. God gives mercy. I give mercy away. God shows me mercy. God gives mercy. I give mercy away. God shows mercy. Listen, in our life, we need to learn how to give mercy. We need to learn how to give mercy. It doesn't mean that we let people get away with stuff. It doesn't mean that we let people um, sin and, and, and do things that are going to end up harming them. Yes, we need to call things out. Yes, we need to disciple and discipline. Yes, those are important. But at the same time, we also have to show mercy. We have to show love and compassion. And that's a, that's a thin line to walk, but it's a walk that we have to do. The next one is this. Blessed are the pure in heart. This one is my favorite. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure there uh, does not mean that you have uh, zero sin. The word pure there, because listen, we all have times when we mess up. We're all poor in spirit. We're all in need of, of mercy. So we all have times when we mess up. But here's what pure means. Pure means undivided. Pure means a straight path. Pure means integrity. God says you're, Jesus says you're blessed if you have an undivided heart. If you have a heart that is desperate for me, for righteousness, not for me and money, not for me and status, not for me and uh, promotion, but if you're desperate for me, if you've got a pure heart, a straight path, undivided, I'm focused just on him. And, and, And here's the cool thing it says, it says this, if you have a pure heart today, and, and I don't remember, Anna, I was going to use this um, based off of something you were singing earlier. And, and now I can't remember the song that, that you were singing. But, but you were talking about uh, being able to see God and recognize God. Here's the cool thing about this. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that I see God um, with my physical eyes. Because some, some people would take, take me very literally here and they'd say, well, if I'm pure in heart, then I should be able to open up my eyes and there's God right there. No, no, no. This means that when I'm pure in heart, when I have an undivided heart, now I can see God in everything. Now, all of a sudden, I can read his word and I can see God in his word. God, I see what you're saying. I see what you're doing. I recognize what you're saying here. And when I see, when I have a pure heart, I can see God in his church. I'm not just always looking at all the bad things and all the bad people, but I can see God moving within his church. I can see God working in creation. I can see God working in my life. Listen, there's been times in my life whenever, you know, you drive in and you think of things as being a coincidence. And I I think... I've started telling myself there's no coincidences anymore. It's God 
working things out. But there's been times in my life when I've been in a hurry and I drive into a parking lot and, and all of a sudden the, the spot at the very front opens up, right? And normally you say, oh, that's great. I'm going to just pull into that spot. And there was a time in my life when I started having to recognize the fact that, you know what? That might have been God helping me out with just my day-to-day life. And it's okay for me to recognize that. It's okay for me to see that. And it's okay for me to, to thank him for that. And so I begin to try to see God in everything. I begin to try to see God in, in, in creation. And so there's times my wife is, is big on this one, is that, is that anytime we're driving around and she sees a beautiful sky, she says, listen, kids, that's God. That's God speaking to us. That's God showing us how much he loves us. That's God caring for us right there. And, and we begin to see why. Because whenever you have an undivided heart, when you're so focused on God, then you'll see God everywhere. Have you ever seen that syndrome where um, this happened to us? We bought a Nissan Pathfinder. Is that what we have? A Pathfinder. And, and before we bought the Pathfinder, I had never noticed a single Pathfinder, right? As soon as we bought the Pathfinder, I'm like, there are a million people with Pathfinders that live in Trustful, and there's not a million people in Trustful. I feel like everybody owns a Pathfinder, right? No matter what you do, no matter what you get, there's, you're always going to see it. Um, and and so, so it's that same way. Whenever your heart is focused on something, when you're pure in heart, then you will see that thing everywhere else that you go. So the same, that's how it works with God. Verse 9, and I know we've got to hurry. We've only got a few more things to go. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now I want you to notice something. He doesn't say blessed are the peaceful. He doesn't say blessed are the peaceful. And this is good news for my youngest son, because there's very little peace in him. Um, it doesn't say blessed are the peaceful. It says blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So... We've got a dog at the house, and, um, and it's so funny. Perry and I have made a joke about this now. But every time we hug and kiss at the house, um, like, we'll stand there, and we'll hug, and we'll kiss, and we'll just wait. And all of a sudden, Nola will come running up, and she looks at us like, what's happening right now? Because I'm her man. Like, Nola loves me. Everywhere I go, Nola follows me, right? And so whenever Perry comes over and hugs and kisses me, Nola looks at her. And then, boom, she jumps and hits Perry with her paws. And, and so we used to think, oh, she's jealous. She wants in the mix. No, no, no. She thinks we're fighting. Like, she thinks there's a problem. No, that sounds bad. It sounds like our kissing is, like, very violent kissing. It's not. It's not. Um, keep going. Okay. Um, I've, I've totally lost track now. Sometimes you start thinking about kissing, and it's like, that's all you can think about. Um, and so, and so I did a little research and I found out that, that yes, there are times, there are times when dogs do get jealous and they want to get involved in the, in the playtime. But a lot of times, uh, what, what studies have shown is that dogs think that you're fighting. Dogs think there's a problem because when two dogs were to, if they were to wrap up like that, a lot of times that means there's, there's a fight going on, a struggle. And so our dog wants to protect us and wants to break up the fight. Dogs don't want fights within their pack. And so they will get in the middle of the two of you to separate you because they, it's, it's not that Nola loves me and, and doesn't love Perry. She's trying to break up the fight. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. What is a peacemaker? A peacemaker is a person that's willing to break up the fight. A peacemaker is a person that's willing to sit in the church and they look over and they see one person with a frown on this side of the room and a person with a frown on this side of the room and they recognize the fact that these two people don't like each other and I got to get them together somehow. I got to help them break down the walls somehow. A peacemaker is willing, uh, I, I read where Charles Spurgeon once said, that, that a peacemaker is willing to get hit from both sides in order to bring peace in the relationship. And Jesus says, listen, this isn't easy to do, but, but if you will learn to be a peacemaker, then you'll be called a son of God. You will be recognized by people as a son of God. That they'll look at you and they'll, they'll realize who you are and whose you are by the fact that you're willing to get in there and make peace, help bring peace to situations. Some of you have, have jobs and there's constant tension at your jobs. And our, the best thing we can do at our jobs when there's tension 
is just avoid it completely, right? That's what we try to do. Is like, if I can just not talk to this person, because I know as soon as I talk to them, they're going to tell me how to. Listen, what we got to start doing probably is whenever someone comes up to us and they say, I sure do hate so-and-so. I mean, that, that Sean, he is such a jerk. And, you know, he ate all my cookies this morning and that bag was for me and he took it and ate them all. And that's where you got to come in and say, listen, man, let's get this, let's get this right. Let me, let, me, let me help you out here. You need to stop hating on Sean. You didn't need the cookies anyway, right? And, um, and he ate them. Now he'll be sick because of it, and it's not you. And so you begin to bless them, and you begin to help them. You begin to pull the two. Let's get, let's get you and Sean together. Let's, let's figure this thing out. Let's bring some peace into this situation. But what we see a lot in church and a lot in life is, is not peacemakers, but instigators. And so someone comes in and they say, I'm so mad at, at Sean for eating my cookie. And then you're saying, yeah, he ate my cookie last week. I'm sick and tired of that Sean guy. And all of a sudden, we've got factions within the body of Christ. And we're, we're making light talking about a cookie. But honestly, in all my years of pastoring, it, Jonathan, it's legit. It's cookies. It's fake flowers on the piano. It's, it's all the things that are the silly little things. But people begin, and, and you've got these instigators. When I, was, um, when I was in school, I was living in Birmingham for a while, and I was living in a house full of 11 guys. 11 guys in one house. Can you imagine how terrible that was? And, um, and I remember I slept on the top bunk and this guy was underneath me and his name was Todd. And I didn't really like Todd very much at all. And my friend Keith was across the hall and Keith was from West Virginia and people from West Virginia are just different. They're just a different breed of human. And, and I love Keith. And so Keith would come in and it was so easy for me to get Keith to do something stupid. I would just, I would be like, Keith, you're not going to believe this, but Todd said that there's no way you could dump out all of his drawers in his cat, in his, you know, and Keith about, I could do that. You know, he, I don't dump out every one of his drawers because that's how Keith talked and he would dump out all his drawers and then Todd would get mad and Todd would come in the room and he'd be like why are you dumping out all my drawers and he'd say well because you said this and, you, and, and I would just sit on the top bunk and just laugh and laugh and laugh because I was the instigator eventually those two figured it out and we all became best friends and it was all a good good story and I never got in trouble for any of it um, but what we've got to do as peacemakers is learn how to instigate peace and not more anger alright last two Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says this, the last blessing that he gives us is the blessing of persecution. He says you will be blessed when you get persecuted. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't say you get blessed for being persecuted for doing something stupid. Right? He says you're blessed for being persecuted for righteousness, for my sake. I I, I knew a guy one time, and and he said, the people at my job are persecuting me for the gospel. And I was like, really? What are they doing? They won't let me read my Bible. I'm like, they won't let you read your Bible? He's like, no. He said, I'm, you know, like when I'm, when I'm at work and I'm supposed to be working, I will get out my Bible and I will just start reading it. And they're like, you need to go stock those shelves and you need to work the cashier. And he's like, but I'm reading my Bible. And I'm like, yeah, you should be doing work. Like, you're stupid. Go work. Like, when they tell you to stock the shelves, stock the shelves. You can read your Bible at home. You don't have to read your Bible at work. Like, there's places for that, you know. But his mentality was, oh, I'm getting persecuted. No, you're not being persecuted. You're dumb. There's a big, big difference. Big difference. And and so Jesus says this. He says, y'all think I'm being mean. Actually, in the commentaries that I read when I was studying this, they literally said, it doesn't mean being persecuted for stupidity. Um, so, So... The idea here is that we're blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness. We're blessed when people talk about it. Listen, when you start living a lifestyle that reflects the characteristics that Jesus has given us here, the world doesn't give out rewards for biggest peacemaker. The world doesn't give out rewards for, for uh, being the poorest in spirit, right? Ain't nobody handing out awards today for the meekest. You know, oh, Kevin's the meekest. Let's get him up on stage. You know, oh, he's not even coming up on stage. He's so meek. You know, um, they, they don't do that. They don't do that. The world doesn't like it whenever we act this way because it's contrary to the way they think and the way they feel. So when we act this way, eventually someone's going to persecute you. Someone's going to talk about you. Someone's going to look down on you. And Jesus says you're going to be blessed 
You can be blessed. He actually says rejoice, which, which uh, in the Bible means leap for joy because your reward is in heaven. Let's end today with this last little bit. Matthew 5, 13 says, You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can it, uh, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus says this, if you, if you live by these different things, then you will be salt. If you live by these things, you'll be salt. Why is salt important? Because in the Bible, salt was very valuable. They used salt as currency a lot of times. Salt was very valuable. Salt also enhances flavors. I was, I was cooking something, baking something one time, and um, I, was, I was trying to bake cookies for some reason. I would never do that again, I don't guess, but I was trying to bake cookies from scratch, and I noticed in the, in the thing it said, put salt in here, and I thought, that's so stupid. Why would you put salt in something that's sweet? It doesn't make any sense. But in, in reality, salt, when it's put in with something sweet, it enhances the sweetness. Salt has this neat characteristic where, where whatever it's in, in, um, put into, it enhances all the flavors around it. And then the last thing that salt does is salt preserves. Salt preserves. Back before they had refrigerators, um, whenever you would go shoot a deer and you wanted to store that deer because you couldn't eat all the meat right away, you would cover that deer in salt. You would cover the meat in salt and it would stop um, decay and rot from getting into the meat. Jesus says, you and I, when we live as citizens of, uh, of the new kingdom, when, when we act that way, when we live that way, when we get that mentality, that's who we are. He says, we become salt. What, what do we do? It means that we begin to be valuable for his kingdom. We become more useful for his kingdom. Don't you want to be useful in the kingdom of God? I do. He says this. He says, it makes us to where we can preserve people from rot and decay. Can I tell you something? Sin is one of those things that will rot you from the inside out. Yesterday at the prayer walk, I read a scripture out of the book of Psalms, I believe, where, where it, it says, um, whenever I was silent, talking about whenever I had this unconfessed sin, this unrepentant sin, it, it, says, um, it says I was rotting on the inside. I was, I was dying on the inside. I was uh, um, decaying. And our job as Christians is we live in a world that's full of rot and decay. There's a place in the Old Testament. I wasn't going to use this, so sorry, Jordan, it's not on the notes. But, but there's a place in the Old Testament where, where a plague had entered in to the, into the camp of the Israelites. And, and Moses was there. And Moses is trying to stop the plague. And God says, you've got to send someone out into the middle of the plague. And they had this, this censer thing. And in the censer um, in the Bible, uh, it, was, it was incense and smoke was coming out of it. And it represents prayer. And he says, you've got to get somebody out into the middle of the crowd to stand between the living and the dead. And so the guy goes, running out there and he stands where the plague and people are dropping dead and they're dying and they're and and, and they're getting sick and it's just coming in a wave and the guy stands there between them between the sickness and the healthy and he stands there and he holds up the censer and the bible says that the plague stopped at that moment what does God need from us today? We are valuable whenever we're citizens of heaven. We're valuable when we're willing to go stand in between the living and the dead. When we're, when we go, we're willing to go get in there and stop the rot and the decay that's coming upon people. Yesterday, when we're doing the, the whole abortion uh, talk and walking around and praying, one of the things that, that keeps getting thrown out over and over and over again was this idea that that so many women have had abortions, but, but they feel so terrible about it. They feel so guilty and so full of shame. And the church doesn't do anything to reach out to them. If we were salt, we would reach out. We would love. We would have mercy and compassion. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 14, he says, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all those in the house. You know, whenever you're in the dark, darkness isn't, darkness isn't bad. Darkness isn't evil. The room's kind of dark right now. Um, it's not evil. Sometimes being in the dark just means that you're, you're in fear or you're in a hopeless situation. How many of you guys remember when you were a little kid and, and your mom would leave and she'd turn off the lights, right? And, and you would get scared, but then you pulled out a flashlight right? And your trusty flashlight, you know, your trusty flashlight would make all the fear go away. 
Isn't that weird? The flashlight didn't do anything really, but, but like I can shine my flashlight over here and I can see if there's any monsters in the closet and I can look under the bed and I can see if there's any monsters under the bed. And the flashlight became a trusty tool to help me not be afraid in the dark. And what God is saying to us today, what Jesus spoke is he said, listen, you need to be light, but a light that's hidden doesn't do us any good. A salt without saltiness doesn't do us any good. As a matter of fact, you should just trample salt that doesn't have saltiness. You throw it out, it's trash. And a a light that's hidden is not useful. But we've got to be a light in the darkness. We've got to be a light in the darkness. And the reason why is because in Matthew 5, 16, the final verse, it says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen, here's the thing about a flashlight. A flashlight does me no good... And does you no good if all I do is shine it on myself? Now I just look scary. I don't know why this is in scary movies. Like people always do this and they tell scary stories like this. But, but this doesn't do us any good. If all the lights were to shut down in here and we go into emergency mode and it was pitch black, I would need to get you to an exit and this is not going to help. Everybody get out! You know, now you're just scared at the floating head that's screaming at you. But what do I do? With the flashlight, i got to shine. Hey, there's an exit over here. There's an exit over here. I need everybody to head to this exit. What is the flashlight doing? Is it glorifying me? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, if the room was pitch black right now, you wouldn't be able to see me at all. What would you see? You would see what the light is shining towards. I'm shining towards the exit. I'm telling you which way to go. So what does the light do? Whenever Jesus says we're the light, he says, listen, you got to be a light that you shine before men because they will give glory to your father in heaven. The word glory there means uh, it's, it's a, a Greek word. Uh, uh, doxazo is really weird word, but it means this to acknowledge someone's true character, to recognize their value. People don't know they need Jesus. People don't know they need God. People don't know they're poor in spirit, but you do. And in your job today, my job today is to be a light in the darkness. My job is to be salt. When I find someone that's hurt and broken and in decay and rot, to be salt to bring healing and wholeness to that person. My job is when I find people in the dark and they're hopeless and they're in fear and they're scared to shine a light. Not on me, not on me but on Jesus, to shine a light on the Father. I think this is the first time, you can check me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time he even, Jesus uses the word Father in the book of Matthew. It's important to see that because he's showing us that there's a relationship there. Why don't you stand up with me today? People need to know his true character. How are they going to know his character if they've never seen him? They know his character through me, in you. We show his character. This morning, what I want to do is I want us to pray. And I'm going to have a couple of people, if I can get some of our guys that, that help us pray to come down. And, and we just want to pray with you. If you need prayer for anything, then we'll dismiss and, and you'll go home. But listen, when we go home today, I want us to go home and I want us to be salt and light. I want us to walk in the characteristics of a citizen of heaven. So let me pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, I pray over every person in this room. And I just ask you, so we prayed at the beginning. We ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. We ask you to to show us what it is that you're trying to deal with us on. What are you trying to do in us? What are you trying to speak to us today? And we just ask today that we would respond to your word. We would respond to, to your voice in our life. Whether that means today you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not serving him. Maybe you're not a Christian today. You're not a citizen of heaven. Maybe that's you today and you need to respond to that today. You need to, you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe today you need a healing. Maybe today you've got a situation at work or a situation at home and, and you just need God to do a work. Maybe you need wisdom and some business stuff and you need God to speak to you today. Whatever your need is today. We're going to sing one more song. And as we sing this song, I want you to step out of your seat and come down to the front and let somebody pray with you this morning before we dismiss. Go ahead.